This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. U.S. airstrikes against Islamist terrorists in Iraq and now Syria. Is Britain going to join in? Isolation and withdrawing from a problem like ISIL will only make matters worse. Parliament prepares to vote. Who's for? Who's against? And what does public opinion say? And is climate change a bigger threat to world security than terrorism? The Prime Minister says Britain is ready to play its part in the fight against Islamic State. In an address to the UN last night, he said past mistakes should not be an excuse for inaction. We have to learn the right lessons. Yes to careful preparation. No to rushing to join a conflict without a clear plan. But we must not be so frozen with fear that we don't do anything at all. Isolation and withdrawing from a problem like ISIL will only make matters worse. He spoke as US and Arab jets continued bombing Islamic State targets in Syria after attacks began on Tuesday. In a moment, we'll hear from Professor Paul Rogers from the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford and our own defence analyst, Christopher Lee. But first, let's talk to BFBS reporter James Hurst, who's covering events in Westminster. Hello, James. Just talk us through the political process. So at lunchtime today, we saw cabinet ministers walking along Downing Street for an emergency session of the cabinet. Alongside the defence secretary was also the chief of defence staff, General Sir Nick Horton. Uh, that is really it in terms of the political process today. It then all turns to tomorrow's emergency uh, debate in the Commons, which will uh, end with a vote on a substantive motion that the government hopes will see gives it support for airstrikes. And uh, the debate will be opened by the Prime Minister. It'll be closed by the Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg. What we do know about that motion is it will only be to authorise action, military action by the UK against IS in Iraq. It will not allow for Syria. And as you say, James, in Iraq this vote, but last year MPs voted against taking military action in Syria. Has there been a substantial change of feeling to get to this point? I think there are, there are various things. I think uh, as much as anything, uh, a lot of the MPs who opposed last time do see this as a different situation. I importantly, the legal basis for this seems much clearer because it would not be striking at a sovereign state on its sovereign territory. It would be striking uh, at, at, at a group at the request of the Iraqi government. So that's the first thing. Uh, there is also, I think, an important point in this that people see why IS is a direct threat to the United Kingdom. And James, who is likely to oppose it if there is anybody in substantial numbers? Uh, I, well, last time we saw uh, 30 to 40 government MPs uh, voting against plus Labour en masse. You've got some names, uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, who, who generally always opposes military action. Diane Abbott has said she will op oppose it. Madeleine Moon from the Defence Select Committee, it, it seems to be from uh, media comments she's made minded to vote against. Her concern is because hostages are being held. On the Conservative benches, uh, people like John Barron has said he remains to be convinced 
convinced. Dr. Julian Lewis, when I spoke to him earlier this week, was saying, yeah, I'm going to have to be persuaded on the day. But I, I think, uh, unless something surprising comes up, you're not going to see the sorts of numbers rebelling on the government benches, and I think you will also see the majority of the Labour benches voting with the government. Talking of which, it's party conference season. What was said at the Labour Party conference about all of this? Well, you know, uh, very clear statements that that IS pose a threat, that they need to be tackled. Uh, When I spoke to the Shadow Defence Secretary on Monday, which seems an awfully long time ago, doesn't it, Uh, when America had only just started its strikes in Syria, he said that Labour needed to be uh, convinced about the planning and about the legality uh, that we could, uh, if we were to strike, to make a difference. After that emergency shadow cabinet meeting yesterday afternoon, uh, when Ed Miliband came out and said Labour would be supporting the government, it seemed they had already been convinced as a party before the debate came to the Commons. All right, James Hurst in Westminster, thank you. Well, David Cameron was careful to spell out the legal case for airstrikes in Iraq. Uh, Professor Paul Rogers joins us. He's from the University of Bradford. Uh, Professor Rogers, good to talk to you. Do you think that makes a difference? I think it makes a difference as far as Iraq is concerned. Uh, there is a sort of legal basis, uh, but it doesn't actually address the wider issue of whether it's actually wise to go to war with this Islamic State entity now. The big thing which I think people are tending to forget is that in all probability, these people actually want us to go to war with them. They want the West to attack them. They're very anxious to get more recruits as they try to establish this extraordinary caliphate. And they actually want to get people to see them as a vanguard defending Islam after the Western interventions in Afghanistan, Iraq and, uh, and Libya. And this is why I think there's, there's caution in some circles about whether it's actually a wise move in the first place. Christopher, when you hear Paul saying things like that, why do you think the government is poised to carry out those airstrikes on Iraq? If you, if you take some of the obvious things that... Um, For example, the Saudi Arabians would feel very nice about us if we joined in. And we'd feel very nice that the Saudi Arabians would because, for example, a lot of defence contracts still still to be fulfilled. Also, that the Prime Minister very much needs to be seen, um, for the government's point of view, as well as a personal point of view, as big friends with America and number one ally with America. Uh, but some of the things that are being put forward, and I heard James Hurst talking about it just now, that it's now people are now convinced that there is a direct threat to the United Kingdom. There has been absolutely no intelligence and no military evidence that survived to show that it is a direct threat to the United Kingdom. Al-Qaeda, yes, but not, uh, not ISIL. Professor Paul Rogers, I mean, when President Obama said that there were plans afoot to make attacks on American soil and in Europe, what did you think? Well, that may be the case, but the trouble is we've been here before. We were told about the extraordinary threat from al-Qaeda and that we had to get rid of the Taliban and destroy al-Qaeda. And we thought we would do it in two or three months. It looked that way back in 2001. Thirteen years later, we're still fighting a renewed Taliban. Uh, We had the same thing in Iraq. Remember, you know, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction at 45 minutes' notice. I think one has to be very careful about this. Uh, it doesn't in any way help to decide what we should do. But the problem is if you see a huge threat and take a particular action because you can't think of anything else and it's the wrong action, then you can end up in a very big mess. You've also got to think, haven't you, um, Paul, that somebody's got to say to the Prime Minister, hey, listen, 
do you know what these airstrikes will do? Ignore the fact that it's a big combined operation now run from Tampa, Florida, or whatever it is. Airstrikes will do this. They will soften up the organisation you're going for. They will destroy static targets, not the stuff that they've... I mean, three weeks' notice on this, they moved all the targets, or, or, or what was in the targets anyway. They will also make it far more difficult for them to control an organisation which is 30,000 strong, 20,000 strong, or whatever. But most of all, those airstrikes will do, especially when the, um, the Americans bring along the uh, people from Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Qatar, Bahrain. Um, they will allow ISIS to turn around to the rest of the uh, Sunni world, especially, and say, look, you even got these wrong type of Sunnis, the disbelievers on board, so you're, and you're, you're making, you're, 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 you're doing a great job for ISIS. Well, Paul, I mean, much has been made of the fact that these airstrikes have been carried out with allies, with, with five Arab countries. Is that significant? Chris was obviously making the point that they would still be regarded as the wrong, used as a divisive kind of line for, for IS. I think Chris is absolutely spot on on this. I'm surprised more people don't see it. From the perspective of groups like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, they have the far enemy of the United States and its allies, but more crucially for them and more immediately, they actually have the near enemy of the unacceptable regimes. Most uh, at the head of this is uh, the Saudi Arabia, the unacceptable keeper of the two holy places from their perspective. Okay. So, in, in fact, it, it doesn't change things, really. All right. Um, let's assume that the, this vote will, will, will go for a yes. Um, we don't know, obviously, what will happen. Uh, Crystal, can you just talk us through how RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus would be involved? Well, basically, it's a, it's a runway with a command and control system and all the workshops, and therefore you run that bit of the RAF from it. Um, you have also... It fits in, and you've exercised it lots of times, it, it, it fits in with what the Americans are planning. What, and don't forget there's a sea element of this. The Americans have got maritime uh, assets in the eastern Mediterranean as well, the stuff that's going from the Gulf, and then, whether it be aircraft, fixed-wing aircraft, off aircraft carriers, or, uh, or, or missile attacks. And so it is part of the organisation, strictly commanded from... Tampa, Florida, from from Sencom, uh, coordinated. And the more you bring in, the more people you bring in, uh, you've got the experience of exercising, but also the experience of the RF, knowing where they fit, because you can't have everybody saying, right, here's the targets, we'll have that one. It's target acquisition, target allocation, and then the next day, battle uh, damage assessments, right, you can go back, you go back and, and, and try that target again. Mm. That is where it fits in, a crucial part of, a crucial part of the whole operation which is one of the reasons that the Americans uh, uh, quite like it on board, but they do not need it. You talk to the Americans, they say that apart from the politics of bringing in, let's say, the four uh, Arab states, we can do this by ourselves. Um, Professor Paul Rob Rogers, we, we were talking a lot about targets, and um, Chris had made the point that, that it was known by IS, IS what was going to be targeted. But if oil refineries are targeted, if they fund IS, the revenue from that, isn't that a good thing in cutting the finances, at least in, in some way, towards them? It will help to some extent, uh, and one of the sort of five pillars of Obama's policy is to go for the financial backing for ISIS. But it does have a lot of different sources, and these oil facilities are quite small in themselves, so it can probably survive without them. Uh, it will certainly damage it. Uh, it will also, um, in fact, make things life difficult for the many people living under it. And so it is something of a two-edged sword. And it's interesting that the United States has done this on only the third night of what will be a war lasting many months. 
Go back to 1991, Paul. Do you remember yeah. afterwards you saw all these nodding donkeys in the desert? That's right, yeah. Just plumes of smoke. Yeah. They're now producing $2 million uh, uh, a day for ISIS. It, yeah. it doesn't take more than three weeks to put a, a, a nodding donkey back to, to work. It doesn't, and these people are surprisingly competent, uh, technically. Who is, who is buying it, though? Who's bu- who is buying Lots of smuggling routes, mainly up towards Turkey, probably some into Iran, and also within Iraq itself, and probably uh, across the border into Iraq. It's all done at an informal level with lots of small groups who are used to doing this sort of trading. Well, along with bombing raids in Iraq and Syria, the US has been fighting back in the propaganda war. IS have been posting online videos for some time now. Here's a clip from John Cantley, a British journalist who's being used by IS to put their case across. After two disastrous and hugely unpopular wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, why is it that our governments appear so keen to get involved in yet another unwinnable conflict? Meanwhile, the US have released video of the airstrikes taking place along with regular Pentagon briefings like this one from Lieutenant General William Mayville. Coalition strikes targeted ISIL training camps, headquarters, command and control facilities, logistical nodes armored vehicles and leadership. U.S. military forces also executed unilateral precision strikes against the Khorasan Group, an AQ-affiliated terrorist organization located in northwest Syria. The intelligence reports indicated that the Khorasan Group was in the final stages of plans to execute major attacks against Western targets and potentially the U.S. homeland. Christopher. The whole idea of uh, attacks on the homelands, whether it be Germany, West Germany, United Kingdom, east, eastern parts of Europe, and the United States especially, is not simply a justification. It, it, it concentrates on one very real intelligence that people are always trying to do this, and it's not ISIL. People talk about uh, IS or ISIL, or whatever we call it. Um, they're, they're a threat to us. There is no record of ISIL actually carrying out... This is Al-Qaeda sort of stuff. ISIL is sort of you know, looks after the caliphate idea. But United Kingdom, uh, earlier this week, there was a, a poll. And what, what bothers people in the United Kingdom more than anything else? And that poll, which showed that 23% of those polled, their greatest fear was the fear of terrorism. Not the fear of being hard up, of housing, of medical uh, a business or anything like that. It's the sheer fear of terrorism. So when you go to the House of Commons and you speak to this subject, you're going to get you're going to get votes. Uh, Paul, um, the propaganda war itself. How important is it on both sides? It's very important on the jihadist side, and they're very practised it, particularly using the new social media. On the Western side... Why it's, are they so good at it, Paul? Uh, they've developed it over a long time, and they're dealing mainly with a market, if you like, that is young people who are far more proficient at using the new social media than, say, people in my generation. But on the Western side, it's very important. I mentioned these five pillars of Obama's policy, one being to try to counter the financial background. The main one, obviously, is, is the war. Then you have counterterrorism, humanitarian relief, and uh, tackling through the media. So the propaganda war is going to get much more attention But in a sense, um, these groups are actually way ahead on this for their particular audience that is unlikely to listen in to what the Pentagon or others are saying. Christopher. Don't forget also, we've got uh, where we are. We're in the Middle East. We are in the Middle East of revolution, which started in Tunisia, uh, Libya, Egypt, etc. 
the target audience is quite often not people who might be sitting around a table like this in the comfort of, of, of London, the capital city. It is people who are, let's say, middle class, educated, uh, I haven't got a job, what do I do next? Also dissatisfied, strongly dissatisfied with the way their country is being run and that is the target audience. Gentlemen, stay with us. News, discussion and analysis. This is SITREP on BFBS. So, how much does public opinion count in all of this? Last year's parliamentary vote on Syria was lost because it was thought the British public simply could not stomach getting involved in another conflict. So, what are the polls saying now? Let's talk to Tanya Abraham from YouGov's political and social research team. Good to speak to you today, Tanya. Hi there. Hi. What, what do the public think about the possibility of Britain, Britain carrying out airstrikes against Islamic State in Iraq? Well, if we look at the different types of involvement that the British can have within Iraq and within Syria, we find that the majority prefer things like humanitarian aid to help people rather than the more, perhaps, um, physical side to it. So, specifically to airstrikes and also ground troops, we're finding that um, there is a majority that approve of US airstrikes on ISIS forces in Syria in order to weaken them and push back. However, there's a majority of around 50% who actually disapprove of Britain and the USA sending ground troops back into Iraq to, again, fight, fight these forces. Now, YouGov has also done some research on what this group is actually being called by the media. Mm -hmm. uh, what have you found? Well, we asked this actually to both um, an American sample and also a British sample of people. And if we just think about the British sample um, at the moment, what we find is that the majority aren't sure what they would prefer to call them. But of those that did have an opinion, around a fifth thought that they should be called um, IS, so Islamic State. And this was closely followed by ISIS, which is the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. But um, the other thing that we looked at is what is the criteria um, that people think they should be called. And what we can find is that um, there, there is around a third of people who think that the group's own preference should be accepted without scrutiny. However, there is um, around... 40% uh, who think, you know, it should be the most accurate description of what they are, even if it's not what the groups refer to uh, use them as themselves. Christopher, does it really matter what these militants are called? Uh, it matters to them. It's also remarkable, I think quite remarkable, that um, they can change their name. The French have changed what they've called them, haven't they? The French won't call them uh, ISIS, ISIL or IS or anything. Um, and that's on the point of principle. And there is a debate... And I think the debate to say, once you say, you, you say these people are uh, medieval uh, killers or however you like to describe them in the United Nations, but then you say, well, who the, who, uh, the people that are medieval killers are members of ISIL or ISIS, etc. And you give them a label and that becomes very important. The other thing, and I, I mean, Tanya's uh, findings that... Uh, you have a majority of people who will say, or 20% rather, who will say, yes, we prefer IS or ISIS. i tell you why, because that is easy to understand. 
I mean, it's, you know, I mean, a lot of people couldn't have told you what IRA stands for, but it was easy to identify the group that we're talking about. But the other thing which is interesting is that majority would much prefer humanitarian aid. Mm. Tanya, on, on other things that you've been polling on, um, the program, uh, we're going to be talking on this program today about the UN summit on climate change. Mm-hmm. Are people concerned about that? Well, we ask at YouGov uh, various trackers, you know, to find out how people consider various um, issues on a national and personal basis. And what we find is that on a national level, around 10% consider the environment to be important. Um, This is actually quite a a small percentage when we look at it relative to other things like the economy, um, health and immigration. But um, another type of scenario that we pose to the sample is also what do you think are the most serious global problems? And around two-fifths have said climate change but again this is compared to other things like terrorism which around three quarters have uh, Mm. actually selected and there's also poverty and uh, armed conflicts as well. Yeah Chris was mentioning that earlier about terrorism. Uh, Just tell us a little bit about the Scottish referendum vote. Did the issue of defence play any part in the way people voted? It was certainly one of the options or issues that people um, definitely considered when they thought about the referendum but again things top level issues, big issue things like the economy, um, the currency, pensions and also the NHS were really important in how people form their opinions and things like um, nuclear weapons and NATO, whilst they were considered important, they fell relatively low down the list compared to these big level issues. Mm. All right, Tanya Abraham from YouGov, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Well, 10% or not, we care about climate change, we're going to talk about it today. Um, it's been somewhat overshadowed by other events But the UN held a summit on what many believe is a far bigger threat to world security than that, uh, than IS poses. Uh, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon is pushing for all 120 member states to sign up to a comprehensive new global climate agreement at a meeting in Paris next year. Professor Paul Rogers, from the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford and Christopher are are both still here. Professor Rogers, uh, you've done a great deal of work on this subject. Do you think climate change is a bigger global threat than IS? In the longer term, absolutely. If we're talking about a timescale of 5 to 40 years, this combined with the big problem of poverty and marginalisation are the two really big drivers of potential conflict. In the short term, we do have a major problem in the Middle East, but in the longer term, uh, climate change or climate disruption, as it should be correctly called, is the big issue. And it's interesting that quite a number of military think tanks are thinking this as well. And you say a, a driver of conflict. In what way? Well, I think there are two general areas. To put it in sort of ecological terms, if the ecological carrying capacity of the tropical croplands deteriorates markedly, people will not be able to feed themselves, there will be huge social disruption, people will be desperate to move, uh, and there will be all kinds of political instabilities. That is if we don't get climate change under control. There's time to do that, but it's going to be very tricky. But once you move into that sort of uncertainty uh, and, frankly, insecurity and fragility, uh, it is also the kind of period in which you can get some very radical and sometimes extreme social movements developing almost from nowhere, particularly neo-Maoist groups. Christopher, um, Paul saying there that the military is taking this very seriously. What kind of planning do you think there will be going on? Well, it's strategic planning, trying to guess what's going to happen in different parts of the world. I mean, one of the one of the big areas to uh, to to see is people talk about climate change. I think if we talk about global warming, 
it's it's a far more active concern i.e climate change has all always been with us you know before the ice ages etc now we've got something which is quite different if you like in the two, uh, past 200 years uh, climate change has really turned into global warming because the world the, the world is literally heated up there's more carbon up there last year there's a place in uh, in hawaii that monitors this and it hit 400 and that's a magic figure and that's what's happening but when you start to look at it in what could this actually mean t- to the world uh, for example it can change the geography of the world. If you take somewhere like uh, the United States now, there are something like 14 major fires raging in the United States and wiping out great parts of it. This is largely due, now people are discovering, because the wind, uh, the uh, winds have changed and therefore places are drying up, they're becoming tinderboxes. But the next thing to look at is what happens to migration? What happens when people move from areas which can no longer support them. And when people move to areas, they have to move to another area, which somebody has already got. And there is the potential, just one small part of it, potential for, uh, for instability, and that becomes global instability. Professor Paul Rogers, what do you make of China's biggest pledge ever on emissions? And what have they said exa- exactly? Well, the Chinese have long said that it's the West that is to blame because that's been polluting so far. But although China is a very big polluter, a lot has been happening internally. They're very big producers of solar panels. I believe they've been installing more wind capacity each year than the entire British installed capacity. This is partly because within their own uh, policy groups, they know that, in fact, China, because of its own geography, could suffer hugely from climate change, more than many other parts of the world. They're now coming out into the open and admitting that they've got to take action. They are actually doing a lot, but they've got to do it at a time of an expanding population that has very high aspirations. And when you talk about taking action, are you talking about slowing climate disruption or or are you talking about making contingency plans? Uh, Some contingency plans, they're also accepting they've got to adapt. I mean, we're all going to have to adapt anyway because something is going to happen to an extent. But they're actually interested in trying to move away from the very big increases in carbon outputs they have. They're still building dirty coal power stations they're not as dirty as they were uh, but they're putting in a lot of other forms of power and they look like they're going to do this very intensely they are able to do this because of the nature of the central planning uh, and in fact they're doing more than people realize even if they persist in saying that it's largely our fault Christopher, it, it, it's interesting that global warming um, it re- relies people bring it to our attention are the campaigners the people that say yes there is global warming and the world is changing and it's tra- changing for the worst but it's fascinating that it's the industrialists that will eventually have more effect because it will be industrially worthwhile to make these changes whether it's because you can build lots of uh, arrays of wind turbines off the coast of Hull or something like that that doesn't matter but we'll come to a basic thing as far as society is concerned and that is we won't be able to afford our energy now if we all wanted to save what do you do you can turn off the lights you you know you turn off uh, these are basic sort of things and that I think is going to uh, come far truer, closer to the truth of how you do something mm. in, in Western societies. But it won't stop people okay. having to move from one continent to another, and that is going to be the crucial point of instability. Very briefly, uh, Paul Rogers, this meeting in Paris is going to take place next year. What would make you happy? 
from that meeting? Uh, that there is a, a united follow-through internationally. Uh, one very quick thing. I was on the Climate Change March last week. My wife is a Women's Institute member. I joined their contingent. Immediately in front of us was a contingent from the Socialist Workers' Party. So you have an incredibly <laughs> wide range of people who are now recognising this is a serious problem. All right. Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Uh, Christopher, before we go, we must talk about that vote in Scotland. Um, obviously, we know the results now. Any implications? Any anything for defence in that? I think there is, and there's something which isn't discussed very much, and that is this. Um, if, you, if you take the vote, a lot of people who said we want independence were saying, you know, we don't want Trident, we don't, we, we don't want to be, we want to be a nuclear-free zone, etc., although we do want to join NATO. But in the yes, or in the people who said no to independence, there were all a lot of people who were polled who also said that. And I think this whole business, the whole uh, attitude of, of what Scottish um, uh, military installations are going to be, let's say, in, let's say in 15, 20 years' time, and also... The, 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 you think the there may be base, revision anyway? I think there's going to be a much bigger debate uh, that will start, and it will start towards the end of next year. All right, let's talk about Malta. Why? Malta, it's its anniversary of independence. And we, we tend to forget about Malta now. I mean, we're talking about uh, Cyprus and how important it is, etc., strategically. We used to say the same thing about Malta. I mean, well, my father probably did anyway. Um, Malta is the only place I know that is that, that is called George Cross. It was given a George Cross during the Second World War because the Germans blockaded it. And it was starving, and that's where the major oil supplies had to go through. It was strategically the most important island in the whole of the Mediterranean, and it was British. And then Don Mintoff, who was then the president or the prime minister, pulled Malta into independence. But it's a very, very soft spot for the military still, especially the Navy. It was one of the greatest naval bases we had in the world. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Professor Paul Rogers. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again this time next week. Bye-bye. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.